morning. Good morning, everybody. Hope you have your Bible with you this morning. If you do, you need to turn to Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9. Last week, we slowed down a little bit in our study to look closely at the fifth trumpet. I told a friend earlier this week that I was really glad that we did that, that we slowed down like that, because if we had tried to cover trumpets 5 and 6 together at the same time, trumpet 5 that we looked at last week would have lost some of its wow factor. And my friend interrupted me and he said, don't you mean the woe factor? Ralph, maybe in the second service, like you stick around and give me a rim shot at that one. That's pretty good. And that's about as far as we're going to go with humor today. Uh, Because the honest truth is that last week and this week are no laughing matter in Revelation. There are terrible and terrifying images that speak of the wrath of God against those who are opposed to him those who do not bear his seal on their foreheads. This text should rattle cages and bring people to repentance. This text should spur us to urgent evangelism and missions as we proclaim the good news to the world around us. This text should wake us up and steer us away from any complacency, any worldliness, any idolatry in our own lives. The tone of Revelation chapter 9 in particular is somber, and I want to get that right today. For application last week, I asked you to consider three questions. Number one, are you sealed by God? Do you belong to him by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? And if not, maybe today is the day that all of that changes. Maybe today is the day that he wakes you up and gives you life. You repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Second question, are you living for him? Too many people are professing faith in Jesus, but living just like the rest of the world. Third question, are you ready for this? What we read about in chapter 9, are you ready for this? I encouraged you and will continue to encourage you to walk faithfully with the Lord today so that you will be ready to walk faithfully with him in the darkest days. Whenever they come and whatever they might look like, whether it is demon locusts that we saw last week or whether it is a cancer diagnosis, if you are walking faithfully with him today, you'll be ready to walk faithfully with him when it gets really dark. Well, this week we're going to continue with the sixth trumpet in Revelation chapter 9. Remember last week the text, as scary as it was, left us with this ominous expectation of what is to come. In verse 12 of chapter 9, God's word says, The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. And that's what we'll dive into today. But before we read and we pray and we dive into the text, I want to tell you about a conversation that happened in my Sunday school class last weekend. And I didn't realize it quite at the time, but now I see that it was really a beautiful picture of what it looks like to understand passages like this. A member of my class said, sometimes the Bible is really hard to understand. She said, I read it and I just feel lost sometimes. Isn't it supposed to be simple? Now, I think we've all been there at times, right? And in fact, many of us are there right now in our study of Revelation. It's just hard sometimes to understand Uh, the word of God. And then she told me, as she was explaining this, she told me about her seven-year-old daughter, that, that in the midst of the Sunday sermon last week, though she might not have been grasping all of the details, we realized that she was understanding it quite well because what they noticed was that in her fear of what was coming out of the pulpit, she snuggled up close to her dad. 
that this little girl, as I was preaching these things about the demon locusts and the trouble that is coming upon those who are opposed to the Lord, she was frightened and snuggled up next to her dad for protection. That's the right way to understand this. In fact, I think that is a small picture of a much bigger truth that we all need to do in light of Revelation chapter 9. We need to be afraid. We need to be afraid of what is here, but not just paralyzed in our fear. We need to snuggle up next to our Father in heaven because he is the one who can protect us. He is the one who can keep us. He is the strong one who watches over us in the midst of all of this trouble. And so maybe, maybe that seven-year-old girl, that seven-year-old little girl understood the text last week better than any of us. And uh, I hope that we will have that response today as we read these terrifying things in Revelation chapter 9. So look at it with me in, ch- in chapter 9, verses 13 through 21. That's going to be our text for the day. Verse 13 says, Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God, one saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone, which proceeded out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. Verse 20 says, The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are thankful that when we are afraid, we can cuddle up beside you and find comfort and confidence and help. We know that this relationship is not enjoyed by everyone, though. It's only enjoyed by those who are rightly related to you by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So we ask that you would give us an understanding like that seven-year-old friend of ours, and that we would naturally cling to you in this process. That we would see you as strong and wise and good and sovereign over all things. We ask also that you would use this day, this text, to strike fear into those who have rejected Jesus, that they would see the futility of their rebellion, that they would see their sinfulness, that they would see your holiness, that they would see your great grace and love in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and that they would repent of their sins and put all their trust in Christ alone. And it is for your glory that we ask all these things in Jesus' name. All right, look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four corners of the golden altar, which is before God. Now there is, of course, some debate here about the identity of the voice that comes from the altar. Is this an angel? 
Is this the Lord Jesus himself? Is this the one who sits on the throne? I don't think it's a major point to determine necessarily the identity, but I do think it's probably the Lord Jesus who is saying these things. Or, if not, it's another angel that is speaking on his behalf. Either way, what we need to understand and what is really not argued by any scholars is that the voice that speaks from the altar is an authoritative voice. This is a voice with all authority and power. When he speaks, angels obey. And what I think is more important, more of a major point in verse 13, is the mention of that golden altar that is before God. We've seen this golden altar a few times already in Revelation, and it is always linked with the prayers of the people of God. We saw it when Joe T. preached a few weeks ago. We saw the martyrs that are under this altar crying out to God for vindication. That's in chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Verse 10 says, what, what they pray is this, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Like they are calling out for vengeance. They are calling out for justice from beneath this altar. We saw it also a few weeks ago when we saw the prayers of the people of God going up like incense. And then the angel casting the coals down from that altar in powerful judgment against the enemies of God. We see that in chapter 8 verse 6. So it seems here in chapter 9 verse 13 that there's a similar thing going on. What we see here and what we have been seeing throughout the trumpets is an answer to the prayers of the people of God for vindication an answer to the prayers of the people of God for deliverance, for justice, and for the culmination of all things. What we are seeing in these trumpets is part of the answer to our prayers, come Lord Jesus, come quickly Lord Jesus. And so here today, this morning, I want to I encourage you once again to be praying that way. To be praying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I think especially in light of suffering and trouble that we see around us, I think the, the right response to suffering around us is to pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, because we know that there is going to be suffering and increased suffering until he returns and sets all things right. And so we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I heard uh, this week uh, about a friend of my family's who had passed away suddenly, unexpectedly. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. It is tragic. It is painful. Uh, and and my, heart, my heart cried out, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I don't like getting those calls. And I long for the day when those calls don't come anymore. Especially in the midst of suffering, let us pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Look at verse 14. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, there is something interesting and unique happening here when compared to the rest of the trumpets. The angel who blew the sixth trumpet is now involved in the action that is going to unfold. He is commanded to release four angels that are bound. I don't think that's a huge point, but it is interesting to notice that, that so far, the five angels who've blown trumpets, that's all they've done. They've blown these trumpets and then other stuff has happened. But this angel blows his trumpet and then he goes and does some work. Um, I don't know that it's a major point, but it, it, it certainly stands out as unique amongst the trumpets. And there are several different understandings of the four angels that are, that are told to be released. That, that, are, that are The angel who blew the trumpet is told to release four angels. Who are these four angels? Well, some link these four angels back to chapter 7, verse 1. You can look at it with me on the screen. When we think of four angels, last time we saw four angels, it was here. It says, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. 
And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. That was right at the beginning of that interlude of chapter 7, right? And so when we read about four angels here in chapter 9, we, we want to immediately think of those guys who are holding back this destruction and are now told to be released. Some argue that it's these four angels. Some argue that it's four other angels, different angels, probably fallen angels, which we often refer to as demons. The fact that these angels are mentioned as bound, they are described as bound beyond the river Euphrates, leads us to the understanding that they are demons. Good angels are never mentioned as being bound in Revelation, but bad angels are. Demons are often referred to as either bound or will be bound in Revelation. The fact that they are described as being beyond the river Euphrates seems to indicate that they're bad guys, that they are enemies. For the river Euphrates has long been a border which enemies had to cross in order to cause trouble. If there was going to be an invasion, the invading army would have to come across the river Euphrates. And so this seems to be setting these guys up as bad guys, as demons. And if they are demons, it fits with the theme here of the trumpets. That even demons and their torment is under the sovereign rule of the Lord. Now rather than get lost in the details about exactly who these, de- these angels are, I say we just go with it. That they are four angels, demons probably, who are enemies and are coming to do damage. And that's what you're going to see. When when these guys are released and they bring their army with them, it is carnage that comes upon the people. Look at verse 15. It says, And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. Now this verse is super important for our understanding of this passage. First thing I want you to notice is the sovereignty of God over all of this. Don't miss that. This is so important. When we talk about the seals and the trumpets and later on when we talk about the bowls, we want to see and affirm the sovereignty of God over all of this, that this trouble is not happening apart from his rule and reign. And it is not without purpose. This has purpose. It has even redemptive purpose we will see in the text today. God is sovereign over all this. He's the one who's giving the directions. He's telling this angel to let these demons go. He's directing uh, the flow of events. He's also the one who sets the timeline. The language in verse 15 says that these demons, these angels, had been prepared for this. It also lists out a specific time. They had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year. And that language helps us reminds us of Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, speaking of a very positive thing, right? A very positive expectation in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ says it like this. It says, but when the fullness of time came, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. So there's a little bit of a parallel here. In the same way that Christ came to die for our sins and redeem us, At the fullness of time, here these demons are released at the fullness of time. Like it was a prepared hour, a prepared month, a prepared year. There was a date for this, and at just the right time, this is going to unfold. So notice the sovereignty of God over it, that he's the one giving the directions, that he's the one setting the timeline. Secondly, notice the specific mission that these angels, these 
fallen angels or demons have been given. They are called to kill one-third of mankind. Just let that sit for a minute. Their mission is to kill one-third of mankind. Now, I think that this still, this text still maintains a distinction between the people of God who have his seal on their foreheads and the earth dwellers. I think there is still a distinction between the people of God and the people of the world in this text. And I think it comes across clearly later on in verse 20, if you want to skip down there. Look at verse 20. When, when all of this unfolds, it says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues... So, so the, that's a reference to the two-thirds that survive. He says, they did not repent of the works of their hands, so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And then he says, nor did they repent uh, of their immorality and, and their murders and their sorceries and things like that. And so I think that the, the group upon whom these demons murder, the, the, the group that they murder, the group that they kill, does not include the people of God who have the seals on their foreheads because the people who, are, who survive, it says, do not repent. And the people of God have already repented. The people of God are already repenting. So it seems that the trouble that they bring comes upon those who are earth dwellers, those who are opposed to God, not the people of God who have his seal on the forehead. Now, the people of God will experience trouble in this same period, but not from this demon army that is going to come and kill a third of mankind. So notice their mission. They are called to kill a third of mankind. And I think this number, this third of mankind, is symbolic and not precise, like most of the numbers in Revelation. It fits with this overwhelming sense of destruction that we have seen all throughout the trumpets, each of which seem to have some kind of mention of one-third. One-third of the grass, one-third of the sea, one-third of the fresh water, one-third of the ships. We've seen all of this kind of one-third throughout the, throughout the trumpets, and I don't think it's a, a matter of precision, but a matter of overwhelming pain, overwhelming death and destruction. Be overwhelmed by this idea of one-third of mankind dying at the hands of this demon army. You might remember that last week, the demon locusts could not kill. Like they were explicitly told, you cannot kill. They could only torment for five months. And now we see that that limitation is lifted, but there is still a limitation. These demons, though they kill, and not just torment, they kill, they can only kill one-third of mankind. John MacArthur has an interesting take on this when he says, death, which had taken a holiday under the fifth trumpet, now returns with a vengeance. You remember that last week? In response to the torment that those demon locusts were bringing, the text said people would long to die but would not find death. They would prefer to die but would not die. And MacArthur says death had taken a holiday in the fifth trumpet, but with the sixth trumpet, it comes back with a vengeance and one-third of mankind will perish. Danny Aiken points out that this is a precise time and there is a precise purpose to kill one-third of mankind and then he adds this line. He says, the carnage is unfathomable. And, and we need to feel that. We need to feel that like John would have felt it when he saw this unfold before his eyes. And I am 100% with Craig Keener when he says, the death of one-third of the world is judgment, but it is also mercy. 
And let's think about that for a minute. The death of one-third of mankind is certainly judgment, but it is also mercy. And what we're going to see as the day unfolds today that there are three big ideas coming together in this text. One big idea is judgment. This is judgment. These seals and these trumpets and later the bowls are judgment from a holy God against the sinful world. They are absolutely righteous judgment from a holy God against a sinful world. And this judgment is well deserved. We see judgment in the trumpets. Secondly, we also see mercy in the trumpets and the bowls and the seals. Because as these things unfold, we see that there is time that is given for people to repent. Not all three-thirds of mankind perishes at the hands of this demon army. Two-thirds survive and are given an opportunity to repent. So even in the judgment that God is bringing against his enemies, there is mercy. There is mercy for this season. They are given a chance to repent. And the third thing that we're going to see come together is justice. Justice is going to be established in this whole process when there is no repentance. And we're going to get to this more in a minute when we get to the end of the text today. But even in light of his great mercy, the two-thirds that survive do not repent. And therefore, when he brings the final judgment, when he brings the final hammer, the fullness of the wrath of the Lamb, when it comes, he will be completely justified. And there will be no doubt that this is well-deserved. He had been patient. He had been kind. There is no excuse. When final judgment comes, there will be justice. We're seeing all of this come together in Revelation. Look at verse 16. It says, The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. Now, I am puzzled by the translation of this passage, especially by the New American Standard translation of this passage, because what we see here in this number is the same language we saw back in chapter 5 when we met myriads and myriads, thousands of thousands of angels around the throne. And the point there was to say, this is not a precise calculation. We don't want to put a number on this. We just want to be overwhelmed at the sheer volume, the crowd of angels that are around the Lord. Well, here, it's the exact same language. In fact, literally what is said here is two myriads of myriads. That's that's the way it comes out, two myriads of myriads. And I think translators do us an injustice when when they give us a precise number there, however they give us a precise number. Um, because it sets us up to be looking for an army that has a certain number of soldiers in it rather than just feel the sheer overwhelming strength of an army that would have 200 million people. It, I, think, I think a better way to understand it would be like me saying there were a gazillion soldiers, right? Is gazillion a real number? I don't know, but you know what I mean, right? You know what I mean by a gazillion. There's just a whole bunch of them. And that's the same thing that's going on here. So I'm confident that the point of this verse is not to give us a precise number of soldiers in the army, but rather to mention a force that is so vast that it leaves people absolutely speechless. And I think this mistake of reading this literalistically was really clear back in the 70s. I I wasn't alive then, but I read some stuff back in the 70s that China began to boast of having a standing army with 200 million soldiers. Like literally, they said, we've got 200 million soldiers in our army. And immediately people said, this is it. China is this. I don't think that's the point here, folks. I think what we're going to see is, especially in the next bit of the text, is that this is not a literal army. 
This, this is a demon horde that is coming to inflict death upon the enemies of God. God is going to use the demons to bring his judgment upon his enemies. So, I guess this is what I want to get to you here. Don't start counting horses. That's not the point. Don't start counting soldiers. Rather, be overwhelmed and be afraid because the force that is referenced here is a force to be reckoned with. In fact, it is a force that no one could stand against. It is unstoppable and absolutely powerful. And I think what we see in the next few verses is going to indicate that it's not an army of men. Rather, it's an army of demons who bring death and destruction to an even greater degree than we saw with the locusts last week. Look at it in verse 17. He says, And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and hyacinth and brimstone. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouth proceeds fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which proceeded out of their mouth. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. I think the very beginning of verse 17 is really helpful. Like John is giving us some insight into how all of this is happening. He is seeing this in a vision and he is trying his best to describe what he is seeing with words. And we, it's obvious that that's not always easy to do because what he describes here doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Like we couldn't draw a picture of this, but it is terrifying. It is absolutely terrifying. And, and what he draws, he draws with some Old Testament paint. There's some Old Testament coloring to all of this, especially when we talk about fire, sulfur, or brimstone. Just the mention of those words together makes you think about Sodom and Gomorrah, doesn't it? Sodom and Gomorrah, these wicked cities in the Old Testament. Look at it in Genesis 18. Read kind of the lead up to Genesis 18, or to, the, to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It says, the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to this outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will not, I will know. And, and you may remember how this plays out. Abraham is like, oh, Lord, don't, don't destroy them. What if, what if there are 50 righteous people there? And, and he enters into this whole negotiation with God, which is bizarre and difficult to interpret. But he has this negotiation with God where he's, he's pleading for the sparing of Sodom and Gomorrah if there are just a certain number of righteous people there. And, and in verse 32, he gets to the end of this discussion and he says, Oh, may the Lord not be angry. I shall speak only this once. Suppose ten are found there. And he said, God said, I will not destroy it on account of ten. As soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed and Abraham returned to his place. And what we know is there weren't ten people. There weren't ten righteous ones there because in the next chapter, in verse 23, it says, The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife, that's Lot's wife, from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. You might remember that. Verse 27 says, Now Abraham rose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about when God destroyed, God destroyed the cities of the valley, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overflow, overthrow 
when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. You know that story. You know about the destruction that came to those two cities. We still talk about that. In fact, it's one of the few stories that is still part of our regular everyday language. Like you can mention Sodom and Gomorrah to most people in America and they have some understanding of what you're mentioning here. That destruction came to two cities. How much more terrifying will it be when that kind of destruction comes on one-third of mankind? How much more terrifying is it to think about that destruction coming on a third of mankind and killing them? So it's Old Testament paint that John is using here. It's also Revelation paint that he's using here. There is a consistent reference to fire and brimstone when it comes to judgment throughout Revelation. George Eldon Ladd said, fire and brimstone indicate their hellish nature. That is, this army is army from hell. And there's consistency with the locusts that we saw last week. Those things were scary, right? They were absolutely terrifying. Every facet about them was terrifying. In fact, John is just heaping image upon image to make the most terrifying description he could imagine. And these guys are worse. These are mounted soldiers on horses that have teeth like lions and they've got tails that are like snakes they can kill from the front and the back. These guys are even more terrifying. One scholar says these horses are truly out of this world. I would say they are like the demon locusts on steroids. If you thought it couldn't get worse from last week, it is way worse this week. And we should be left stunned, scared, in awe. But look what happens in verse 20. This is the worst part. It says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders nor of their sorceries nor of their immorality nor of their thefts. This is probably the most important part of the text today. First, I don't want you to miss the mercy of God in the midst of this judgment. How many thirds of mankind deserves to die? How many thirds of mankind deserves to die? Three thirds. Three thirds deserve to die. Fully all of mankind deserve to die for their sins against God. And yet, in this passage, it is clear that he spares two thirds. He is merciful to two-thirds of mankind in this text. And one would think, in light of this mercy, that the two-thirds would see it and repent. God is giving them time to do just that. And yet, the text says, they do not. They do not. George Eldon Ladd says, the demon plagues of suffering and death, terrible as they may seem, embody a merciful purpose. They are designed to turn men to repentance before it's too late. Throughout the course of the age, men have been able to pursue a path of sin and to defy God with impunity and apparent safety. As the end approaches and the time of judgment draws near, God pours out on men a taste of his judgment and wrath. But this is not because he takes pleasure in wrath, but in order to warn men that that the way of sin and defiance of God can only lead to disaster. First thing I want you to see in light of all this is the mercy of God in the midst of the judgment. Which helps us to see the second thing, the radical depravity of man. The radical depravity, the deep sinfulness of man is clearly on display in this text. It's crazy, isn't it? The demon worshipers, 
Don't stop worshiping the demons, even when the demons torment them and kill a third of them. That is outrageous. It is unthinkable that the demon worshipers keep worshiping the demons even when they torment them and kill fully one-third of them. We read in the Bible that darkness loves darkness and hates light, and that is on display in this text. Grant Osborne says, they refuse to repent. Literally, they do not even repent, emphasizing their complete and willful rejection of God. Most shocking is the fact that after the demons have produced the greatest death toll in all of history... The unbelievers still reject God and prefer to keep worshiping the very demons who have just tortured and killed them. This last line is so good. He says, is there any greater proof of the insanity of sin? Sin makes you stupid. It makes you insane. People do crazy things because of sin. And it's on display right here. Our hearts are deeply wicked and that depravity is on display. So first... We see the mercy of God in this judgment. Secondly, we see the radical depravity of mankind in this judgment. And third, what we're going to see is the total justice of the final judgment. This is setting the stage for God to bring the hammer down fully and no one be able to say, well, wait a minute, you didn't, you didn't give us a chance. Wait a minute. We didn't know. Wait a minute. No, he's, he's given them every opportunity and they still reject him. And so when the final judgment comes, it will be absolutely just. No one has an excuse. Everyone has proven their hardness. Rebellion is well established. So when God brings the hammer, no one can question his judgment. No one can question his justice, which leads to the first application today. Friends, judgment is coming. It really is coming. God is completely just. He cannot just ignore sin. He cannot let the guilty continue to go unpunished. Judgment is coming. And what we're reading about in Revelation 9 and this whole surrounding passage, what we're reading about here is just a taste of that final judgment. It is an appetizer of the fullness of the wrath of the Lamb which is to come. And the fact is, much worse is coming for those who do not know Jesus. Like if chapter 9 is terrifying, the final judgment is even worse than that for those who do not know the Lord Jesus. And this judgment that is coming is certain. And it is closer now than it has ever been. There should be a greater sense of urgency today than there has ever been. And I think some people read this text and they're like, really, we're going to talk about judgments coming? People have been saying this for 2,000 years, preacher. I'm kind of tired of it. I don't think judgment's coming. Yeah, it is. And the fact that it has been delayed for 2,000 years up to this point only should increase our urgency and our expectation that this is just around the corner. Judgment is coming. It is certain. Therefore, be afraid. Be afraid. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, you should be terrified at this prospect. To know that this is just a taste of what is to come for the enemies of God. Judgment's coming. Number two, salvation, deliverance, safety is only found in Jesus. Therefore, repent of your sins and trust in him. Like I'm, I'm telling you today, judgment is coming, but salvation is available. So repent of your sins while there's still time. 
There won't always be time to do that. God is not always going to wait. He's not always going to be merciful. There is a season for repentance. There is a season for faith. Repent and believe while there's still time. Joe Joe T. made a great point earlier this morning. He said, we need to recognize that if we are still alive, we are part of the two-thirds that have been spared so far. Like, treat yourself like that. And don't be so foolish as the two-thirds in Revelation chapter 9 who do not repent. Be wise and repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. While there's still time, and there is time, Today, today there is time. There is an opportunity to repent of your sins and trust in Christ and find salvation in Him alone. There is time to do like my seven-year-old friend and cuddle up next to your Heavenly Father and find safety in Him in the midst of this terrifying scene. Today is the day of salvation. God is holy, man is sinful, Christ died for sinners, and salvation is found only in Him. Repent today and believe and be saved. Number one, judgment's coming. Number two, salvation is only found in Christ, so repent and believe. Number three, if you are one of his, like if you've got that seal on your forehead and you are spared the death that comes through this demon army, you know that your salvation is solid and secure and you have hope for the future, don't just go hide in a cave and wait for this stuff to pass. Get out there and tell the world about Jesus who saves. Go out there and tell the world good news. Listen, friends, this world is full of bad news, right? Like you turn on the news, it's bad news. You talk to people about how's it going, it's bad. Don't you think that right now? Like you run into somebody, you're like, hey, how's it going? Oh, it's going pretty good. You lie, you lie. It's not going good. But we, in the midst of this, have good news to share. And we must share it. We've got good news that, that is beyond this world is out of this world, and we need to tell the world about it in the midst of the trouble. And as we do that, I think that one of the things we learn from Revelation is that maybe one of the approaches is this kind of language about the impending judgment. I I think a couple of generations ago, this was like the only way people shared the good news, like with the threat of judgment to come. You, you call them fire and brimstone preachers, right? Like there was, there was a couple generations ago where that's the only way people shared the good news was fire and brimstone. And, and my fear is that in reaction to that, we have swung the pendulum so far away from that that to speak of impending judgment, to speak of God's wrath against sinners is somehow out of bounds right now. Like we don't want to scare anybody. John didn't seem to be afraid to scare anybody. Jesus doesn't seem to be afraid to scare people. Like the reality is judgment is coming. And the reality is there is real salvation in Christ alone. So so if you're enjoying that salvation, you should go and tell the world about it. Maybe maybe one of the ways we do it is to talk about impending judgment. Maybe that's a language some people need to hear. You know, you you have kids that are like that, right? You you have some kids that you can look at just kind of crossways and they immediately straighten up and they like no. Oh, okay, it's, it's serious. You have other kids that you have to threaten with final judgment, right? You have to bring that kind of final judgment to get their attention. I think there are people wired like that when it comes to their souls as well. And, and if all we ever tell them is Jesus makes your life better, maybe it doesn't get their attention. Warn of final judgment. Don't be afraid 
of making people afraid. Like that picture of my seven-year-old friend cuddled up next to her dad. That makes sense. It's beautiful. Some people have no cause for fear, though, because they've never been told about judgment that's coming. Now, in light of all of this, the fourth application I want to make today, in light of all this talk about final judgment, coming judgment, I want us not to forget where all of this is headed for us as his people. Like the, the path of, of revelation is dark. Even, even for God's people, it's, it's certainly dark for his enemies. It's only dark for his enemies. But even for his people, it's kind of dark. There is, there is this, this suffering. There is this persecution. There is this trouble that comes for us. But friends, we know that the, at the end, it takes a radical turn, right? At the end of the book, it takes a really radical turn for us as his people. And we are ultimately, finally, fully delivered from any trouble at all. And we are brought to dwell with him forever and ever. No more tears, no more sorrow, no more death, no more trouble at all, right? So let's not forget about that. I just I want to remind you that that's where all this is headed. As much as we talk about the trouble, let's not forget the end of the story is ultimate victory and deliverance for us by his grace. By his grace forever and ever. Let's stand together and pray. Father, wake us up to the reality of judgment. Wake us up to the reality of mercy. Wake us up to the reality of justice. Wake us up to the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I pray that you will use this text today to terrify your enemies and bring them to repentance. That you would cause them to turn and trust in you to seek deliverance in Christ. And I pray that you will use this text to bring your people to a sense of urgency to proclaim good news to the world around us in the midst of all this bad news we've got, I pray that you will stir us to be sharing good news of salvation, of deliverance, of hope in Christ alone. Pray that in the midst of all of this darkness, you will remind us of where this is headed for us as your people. This is headed toward victory and eternal glory with you. It's a good thing for us. Remind us of that. Keep us strong in the midst of this pain. In Christ's name.